All right, for those of us who are left, please take your Bible and turn to Matthew chapter 26. Matthew 26, if you do not have a Bible, there's a black Bible around your chair, but also um, if you do not have the translation that we use here, or if you don't even have your own Bible at all at home or anything, then uh, we have some white Bibles on that back uh, bookshelf. That's our gift to you if you would like a Bible. A few chapters ago within the book of Matthew, Matthew chapter 21, we, looked, we began with what we know as the Passion Week or the Holy Week. You remember the last week of Jesus' life began with the triumphal entry uh, on that Palm Sunday. Jesus rides into the city of Jerusalem. There's certainly an indication as he rides into the city on that donkey that he is presenting himself as the king. He's presenting himself as the Messiah of the people of Israel, And you remember that scene where all the people are uh, putting down their palm branches, they're putting down their cloaks, they're really making a, a, a road of sorts, or a carpet on the road for him to ride on. The palm branches would have been a sign of victory. They were excited about this one who many of them had thought at least would be their Messiah, at least in a physical sense. You remember that the Jews were looking for a Messiah to deliver them from the Romans. That's what they were looking for deliverance from. They weren't necessarily looking for deliverance from spiritual bondage. They were looking for deliverance from their physical bondage of being oppressed by the Roman Empire. And so they, they're excited. They see Jesus coming in on the donkey. They recognize the significance of that event. And so they celebrate it as such, saying, Hosanna to the son of David. But as we've continued in the book of Matthew, we've seen many interesting and important things since that Palm Sunday triumphal entry. So since Matthew 21, we've continued to regularly see many incredible events. You remember on Monday of the, of the Holy Week that we saw Jesus approach the fig tree. So he sees a fig tree in the distance and he presumes that there's good fruit on it. It looks as though it's ready uh, to be harvested and that you can at least eat something off of it. But as he gets to that tree, upon further examination, he notices that there's no figs at all for him to eat. And so Jesus curses the tree and the fig tree withers and die, dies. This fig tree with no figs really serves as a metaphor of what was going on within Jerusalem, within Israel. They, Israel, the people there, they appeared to have fruit, They had the the evidence of religion. They seemed as though they were honoring God and so forth, but really there was no fruit to be found. Later on this day, on that Monday, Jesus goes into the temple and he famously clears out the temple from all the really shenanigans that are going on there with people selling and making profit within God's temple. So this temple had turned into the place for man to profit instead of for God to to be worshipped. And so Jesus does what, has, what he has to do, and he drives out the money changers, and he overturns the temple, or the, the, the tables. These, on Tuesday, the disciples notice, as they go back and forth from the city of Jerusalem, they notice that the fig tree is withered. They see that it is, they marvel over it, and later on that day, Jesus continues to go back and forth with the religious rulers. Wednesday of Passion Week is really where we were last week when we looked at our passage, where the religious rulers are beginning to plot against Jesus. They're really starting to think to themselves of how they can entrap him. They're trying to think of the best way and really a quiet way to get rid of Jesus. And so that's what they do. They discuss that, and we saw that last week, where Jesus predicts that he's going to be crucified and 
he is plotted against by the religious rulers. Of course, Judas goes ahead and he plays Jesus. He, he betrays Jesus for those 30 pieces of silver. Yet in spite of all that swirling around Jesus at this point within Passion Week and the betrayal and the plotting and all of those things, Jesus was determined to do the will of his Father. He spent much of his time this week during the Holy Week either cleaning out, cleaning house within Jerusalem or teaching the crowds or teaching his disciples. And what we find within our text this morning is what happens on the Thursday of Passion Week, which should automatically trigger something in our minds that we're just a day away from Jesus being crucified, being Thursday of the Passion Week. So these last moments, these last words, This last meal that we see within our text, all of it carries a very specific and, 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 and just heavy weight being the last words and the last moments and the last meal that Jesus will participate in before he is crucified. Within our text, we find an interesting scenario because Jesus makes an important shift that we need to be sure to understand. He shifts the covenantal meal for the people of God from the Passover, which they had celebrated for so long, and he shifts it into what we now know as the Lord's Supper. Obviously, we're all pretty familiar with the Lord's Supper. We participate in this meal once a month together here at our church. We generally read this text within Matthew or one like it while partaking in the communion meal. And it's an important time where we are sure to examine our souls to see if we have any unconfessed sin within ourselves. And then even we examine our relationships with other people in the church to make sure that there's no sin between each other. It's the time when we remember Christ and we participate spiritually. And although just a small bite of bread and a small cup of juice, we participate together in this great feast that our Lord has prepared for us. But in order to properly and fully understand the Lord's Supper, we need to be familiar with the Passover. The, the roots of what we celebrate in the Lord's Supper, it, it wasn't just created out of thin air. It's really from what we see within the Passover. And so before we go any farther, we need to make sure that we all understand the Passover. Many of you, no doubt, have seen uh, the Ten Commandments with Charlton Heston, or you've seen uh, the cartoon, the, the Prince of Egypt, right? And both of those movies, and I'm sure other ones as well, depict the, the exodus of the people of Israel out of Egypt. And you remember the Passover scenes within these movies. You probably sat in Sunday school and you've been taught the, the ten plagues, right? The plague after plague that is happening to the Egyptians. But up until the people were freed from Egypt, they had been in slavery for 400 years. Remember that Joseph within the book of Genesis, he ends up becoming great in Egypt, right? Right? And so he brings his entire family to Egypt to live with him while he was in high command. But as the time began to pass, you remember that even the beginning of the book of Exodus says that the current Pharaoh had forgotten all about Joseph. They had forgotten about all the things that Joseph had done. They had forgotten exactly even why the Jews were necessarily there. And so the Jews are growing and growing. They are growing into really a powerful nation in and of themselves within the nation of Egypt. And so what the Egyptians do is they enslave the Israelites. And so there they were. They were enslaved for 400 years. Imagine that. Four centuries long 
of slavery until finally, through the miraculous circumstances, God brings about Moses. And you remember that Moses goes to Pharaoh over and over. Let my people go. Let my people go. And each time as Pharaoh hardens his heart, we see that God brings the plagues upon Egypt one by one. And each time Pharaoh, no matter what it is, whether it's the frogs or the gnats or the boils or whatever it is, he refuses to let the people go until finally you get to the 10th plague where all of the firstborn Egyptians are killed. And finally he breaks for a moment and allows the people of Israel to go. But do you remember the houses that the Lord passed over? He passed over all of the homes that had blood from a perfect lamb on either side of the door frame and then on top of the door. We find this in Exodus chapter 12 where God gives directions to the Israelites. He says, For the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians, and when he sees the blood on the lintel, that top part, and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your house to strike you. You shall observe this right as a statute for you and your sons forever. And when you come to the land that the Lord will give you as he has promised, you shall keep his service. And when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? What do you mean by this Passover? You shall say, it is a sacrifice of the Lord's Passover. For he passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians but spared our houses. And the people bowed their heads and worshipped. And so the people, the Israelites, they were directed to slaughter the lamb, take that blood and put it on the doorpost. They were given specific instructions on how to cook the lamb. They were given instructions on how to eat it and and even what to wear while they were eating it and so forth. So when you think about the first Passover, there were several instructions, some of which were crucial even to survival. So if you don't put the blood on the doorpost of the house, your firstborn son would die. Of course, right after the Passover, all of the firstborn Egyptians are dead. And finally, the Egyptians, the Pharaoh, lets the people go. So that's really some of the background of the Passover. This is something the Jews have always celebrated. The Passover is really even directed by God and configured by God even before the law had been put in place. So this is something that goes very deep into the history of the Jews. And so this is a key, key event in the lives of the Israelites throughout the Bible and even today, but specifically for Jesus and his disciples on this night. And one of the things that I want you to see from our text this morning is that the Passover has been adjusted or fashioned into what we now know as the Lord's Supper. The 19th century preacher Charles Spurgeon said it in his typical eloquent way when he said, The Jewish Passover was made to melt into the Lord's Supper as the stars of the morning dissolve into the light of the sun. So you see, although the Passover was meant to be a large part of the lives of the people of Israel, it was to be celebrated every single year, this seven-day festival, it no longer was going to have the same bearing on the lives of those who would be disciples of Christ. So this would be a ceremonial aspect of the law of God that would no longer be binding on the church. But for one last time, it would be. Look with me at verse 17 in Matthew 26. As we enter into this passage. Now on the first day of unleavened bread. The disciples came to Jesus saying. Where will you have us prepare for you to eat the Passover? 
He said, go into the city to a certain man and say to him, the teacher says, my time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. And the disciples did as Jesus had directed them and they prepared the Passover. So the meal had to be prepared. This all important aspect of this seven day feast, the Passover meal part of it was incredibly important and it took really a bit of time to prepare like any meal that you or I would prepare like a a banquet or a big Christmas dinner a big Easter dinner it took quite a bit of time to prepare for the Passover they would have had to secure the lamb right that would have been sacrificed they would have had to either buy or uh, make the bread they would have had to get the herbs together and the wine and all of that sort of thing there was a certain sauce that they would dip the bread into that had to be prepared all All of this was happening on Thursday morning and the meal would have been that night. And so there was a lot to do in a little amount of time. As we've seen before, the disciples go right ahead and they obey what Jesus tells them to do. They go and they prepare the Passover. Yet as the text continues, when it's evening, Jesus and the disciples are reclining at the table. And I made mention of this briefly last week. But the way that they would have done it is that they would have actually reclined at the table kind of a nice thing to do, to recline while you're eating and so forth. So they would have had a big U-shaped table that was very low to the ground, had very short legs, and then they would have been able to lie there, whether it was on their hand or leaning against somebody else, and they would have eaten in that position. The famous foot washing scene, you remember where Jesus, he takes takes um, off his outer garments and so forth, and he begins to wash the feet of the disciples. All of that would have happened already by this point. So John records that for us. But while they're partaking of the meal, that had already happened. And so that was obviously a really important event in and of itself. But as they're enjoying the Passover, Jesus, as they're lying there reclining, he brings up something that's probably not your normal dinner conversation. Look there in verse 21. Truly I say to you, Jesus says, one of you will betray me. So he's there with his disciples, his friends, his co-workers in the ministry, people that he had invested so much in. And he says that one of you is going to betray me. There's, There's a mole in the group. There's a betrayer. There's somebody who's going to betray him, of course, to the death. And you can see the clear response of the disciples in verse 22 when the text says that they were sorrowful. Jesus says, one of you is going to betray me. And all of them are are sad, sorrowful, like any of us would be if we were sitting there. We'd be shocked that there would be somebody that would be so cruel as to betray the Lord whom you have come to know so deeply. But then you see the mood suddenly shift into that of introspection. So at first, they're, they're sorry, they're sorrowful over what Jesus had just told them. But then it goes to this introspection where they say, well, is it me? Is it, am I the one who is going to betray the Lord? They immediately wonder who it's going to be. So what is created all of a sudden is this atmosphere of self-examination. They begin to look at their own lives and wonder, well, could it be me? They, they didn't know what Judas had already done. They didn't know Judas had already gone to the religious rulers and gotten the 30 pieces of silver and all that. But they immediately begin to wonder, is it me? You can sense their own lack of trust 
in themselves. Maybe they feel their own weakness. Maybe they feel their own lack of love for Christ. Could it be me, Lord, that I would betray you? And we looked a little bit last week considering Judas, but is there anything in our own lives where we would say, yes, I would betray Jesus for this or that? Have we examined ourselves? Are we fully devoted to Christ? Each one of these disciples go around the table. Is it I? Is it I? They want to know if Jesus knows that they would betray him. And Jesus says that the one who would betray him is the one who is dipping his hand in the dish with him. And that's a, when we read that, it comes across, it, it can be misleading. Because our assumption is, okay, well, there's Jesus sitting there and he's got this little dish and maybe Judas is sitting next to him dipping it as, as uh, Jesus is saying those words. But that's really, not the pick, that's really not the idea we should have. There probably would have been one dish that would have been being passed around. So all of the disciples would have been dipping in that dish with Jesus. So when Jesus says, it's the guy who's dipping into the dish with me, it's not as though just Judas is doing it, but all of them had been doing it at that point. And it's really at this point where... There's this subplot that's developing. And maybe for a lack of a better way of putting it, there's almost this dance that's happening between Judas and Jesus. Because there's this obvious subplot that's developing and they are the only ones who know how it's going to shake out. It's kind of like an inside joke, right? You're standing there with a bunch of people and a group of 10 people and you and another person know what you're talking about. You get it, but everybody else doesn't really understand. And I see that as what's happening on this Passover night. Jesus and Judas, they both know what's going on, but the rest of the disciples have absolutely no clue. Jesus knows he's going to die. Judas knows he's going to betray Christ. Jesus bends in humility and he cleans the feet of Judas. And Judas, in in that intimate setting, is willing himself to go ahead and have this meal with Christ. So this event of the Passover meal and the installment of the Lord's Supper is happening. But that important subplot between Judas and Jesus is steadily Developing and it's going to begin climaxing at the actual betrayal and ultimately the climax being Christ himself being crucified. And you have to wonder, how debased would Judas have to be in order to betray Christ? Look in verse 25. It's an interesting way that he poses the question. He says, is it I, Rabbi? What's the difference between the way the disciples, the other disciples, ask the question and the difference between the way Judas asked the question? There's a one word difference. The disciples say, is it I, Lord? And Judas says, is it I, Rabbi? Do you know that the New Testament never once records Judas referring to Jesus as his Lord? Never once. Calls him Rabbi considers Jesus to be his teacher, a good teacher, but he never refers to Jesus as his Lord, ever, for obvious reasons. And we may not betray Christ in a way like Judas, but there are plenty of people who simply acknowledge Christ as a good teacher, 
as, as a rabbi, as one who has a lot of good things to say. And so Jesus had plenty of good one-liners that he was able to teach a good and moral lesson that if you follow the teaching of Jesus, you'll live a pretty good life, but that he's really no more than Gandhi or the Dalai Lama or any kind of religious teacher. But if those people do not acknowledge Jesus as their Lord, if we do not acknowledge Jesus as our Lord, then our outcome when we die is going to be no different than Judas' outcome. You go through the letters of the New Testament and they all join in a great chorus, believing and teaching and bowing to Jesus as their Lord. And so must we if we hope to see him. At this point in our text, we move away from that plot that's thickening between Judas and Jesus. And we begin to see how the Passover begins to melt into the Lord's Supper. Look at verse 26 with me. Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, Drink of it, all of you. For this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. The words of Christ there in verse 26 have certainly conjured up a lot of debate throughout the history of the church. Take, eat, this is my body. Roman Catholics, some of you um, uh, used to be, believe in the doctrine called transubstantiation, where the bread and the cup turn into the actual physical body and blood of the Lord Jesus. Lutherans believe in a doctrine called consubstantiation, that prefix con meaning like an in, with, and through. They believe that the uh, physical body is not Uh, to the extreme as Roman Catholic view, but that the physical presence of Christ is in and with and through those elements. Then there are two other positions that the Protestant church has long uh, affiliated themselves with, and that would be the real presence of Christ in that Jesus' spiritual presence is within those elements, within the cup and the bread. And then there's a more strict memorialist position, the the real presence views the bread and the cup as spiritual, and then the memorialist position uh, really views the Lord's Supper strictly as uh, there's nothing spiritual in the elements, there's nothing physical in the elements. We simply partake of the Lord's table in memory of Christ, in remembrance of Him. And regardless of where you fall on that spectrum, specifically the last couple positions, it's important to see that Christ is certainly not indicating that the disciples are feasting on Him in a physical sense. Now, that would be a, a really weird way for Jesus to teach this. After all, is he not sitting there with them? As he says, take, eat, this is my body. This is simply a metaphor. So when we even consider the other metaphors, Jesus calls himself the door, right? Well, does that mean Jesus is an actual door, right? A wooden door that you open up? No, of course not. It's a metaphor that he is the door and you must go through him in order to enter into his joy. Or that Jesus is the lamb. Well, is Jesus a white, fluffy lamb? Well, no, of course he's not. It's a metaphor that he is the one who would be sacrificed 
and on our behalf. And so he takes the bread and the cup, probably the third cup. They would have had four cups of wine throughout this meal. And so the, by the third cup, this cup of blessing, he takes it out and he says, take, eat, this is my body, and take this cup as well. It would be his blood, picturing his blood. And it's at this point where we see that Passover melt into the Lord's Supper. So that Passover meal of God's covenant Old Testament people, it now goes into what we know as the Lord's Supper, which is the meal of God's new covenant people. In other words, God's covenant people, they have always had a meal, right? So as soon as they're not even out of Egypt yet, and God gives them a meal, and that meal carries all the way through until this point, until now the Lord's Supper is instated, and as God's people, as his covenant people, we still continue on with a meal. And Jesus alone is the one who has the authority to, to fundamentally change this. He is the one alone who has the authority to change it from Passover to the Lord's Supper. We've been tracking Jesus' authority all throughout this book, and he's the only one who could take that festival as Passover that they have been celebrating for 3,500 years and transfer it into what we know as the Lord's Supper, which we've been celebrating for the last 2,000 years. So if you haven't noticed, Christians don't celebrate Passover anymore. He's under the law. We are not under the law in that aspect, in the way that, that the Jews had done it. But we do celebrate the Lord's table, which commemorates really the same thing, but on a greater scale and with far greater clarity. The fact that we have been atoned for, that the blood has been applied to each and every one of us, and that God has not dispensed his wrath upon us and, and killed us, really, for what we deserve. God has passed over us because of the work of Jesus on our behalf. And so the Passover commemorates that passing over of the Jews by God because the blood had been applied to the doors of their homes. And the Lord's Supper commemorates partly the fact that Jesus' blood has been shed for us and that we have been forgiven. And so what you have here in this moment of time is that movement from the Old Covenant into the New Covenant and Jesus establishing this meal for his people. And so in the gospel, we have not been set free from a physical slavery like the Jews had been set free from. We've been set free from something far deeper and far greater. We have been set free from spiritual bondage. We've been set free from our sin. We've been set free as a follower of Satan. We have been indwelt with the Spirit of God who brings us life. And in this, the message, this is the message that we trust in and we believe. That the gospel is so clearly seen in the Lord's Supper, is it not? That the, the brokenness of the body of Christ and the pouring out of his blood for our forgiveness. And of course, you cannot neglect Jesus himself being the Passover lamb that Paul refers to him as even in 1 Corinthians. And his blood has been poured out and applied to us, thus forgiving us of all of our sins. And is this not the fundamental need that all of us here who trust in Christ, have we not all recognized the fact that we are in need of forgiveness. A lot of times we can look at a passage 
maybe like this, and think, well, okay, well, that's, that's really informative. Connections between Passover and the Lord's Supper, the Old Covenant, New Covenant, all those kinds of things. But why is this important? Why is the Lord's Supper important? It's important for many reasons, not the least of which is that it embodies the fact that we have all been forgiven. Why don't you turn with me over to Jeremiah 31 as we begin to close. Jeremiah 31. The new covenant people of God, the church, was made a promise hundreds of years before Jesus came. And within that promise, they were promised forgiveness. Jeremiah 31, and beginning in verse 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. And listen here, for I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. So you notice that in verse 31. I will make a new covenant with them. So this new covenant is made with you, church. The law has been written on your heart. He is your God. You are His child. We know Him. But then verse 34, I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. And what does Jesus say in the Matthew 26 passage? That it's the new covenant in His blood that's been poured out for the forgiveness of sins. And so the promise is I am going to forgive you of your iniquity. I'm not going to hold it against you. I'm going to remove it away and forget all about it. And verse in Matthew 26, because my blood has been poured out for you. All throughout the New Testament, we see and we learn about this forgiveness that we have as a result of the work of Christ. And if we confess our sins... He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Peter said, repent and be baptized, every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. To him, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace. And Colossians 1, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Does that not thrill you? That you have each received the forgiveness of of sins again that that huge peace that we all have within us knowing that we all have done wrong that we have all sinned that we have all fallen short of God and through nothing but the forgiveness of Christ can we have a relationship with him we used to sing a song when i was young in our church chiefest of sinners jesus will save as he has promised that he will do Wash in the fountain open for sin, and I will pass, will pass over you. When I see the blood, when I see the blood, 
When I see the blood, I will pass, I will pass over you. And if the blood has been applied to you, God has passed over you and has not poured out his wrath onto you, but instead has poured out his blood for you, thus giving you the forgiveness that we all desperately need. Let's pray. We thank you, Lord, for your word. And I pray that you'll make us mindful and thankful yet again for the forgiveness that we have in Christ. And we know that our forgiveness cost him all. It cost him his life. And we thank you, Jesus, for going to the cross on our behalf. And we pray again that we'll live even more mindful of that fact that we have been forgiven. We thank you. In Christ's name, amen.